welcome to episode 187 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Nathan Smith, Andrew Swafford, Michael O'Malley. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be joined by special guest Blake Williams to talk about Jackass 3D as part of our Tennessee Auteur series, uh, as as well as just 3D technology in general, the Big Ears Festival, and his new film that is playing at Big Ears, uh, which is titled Prototype. Uh, But for movies that we saw this week in part one, technically the movies that we saw this week were other jackass movies so we're gonna just talk (laughs) about the jackass series kind of as a whole in this part um because the discussion in in part two with blake is much more on kind of the theory uh as well as kind of the 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 format and concept of of the 3d technology as it relates to that jackass 3d as a movie uh so we wanted to kind of talk about just the the pure content of 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 these movies and uh and boy is there content (laughs) there's some content yeah uh it's as you'll probably discover you know pretty quickly there is a a clear defense divide between two sides of this of this whole discussion <laughs> um so i guess i guess just a general uh a general overview before we, we start uh the jackass films there are three of them uh that they came out in well two- technically four technically four there's a lot there's also like Jackass 2.5 and there's and like a straight to DVD Evil Knievel tribute yeah, there's three we're gonna talk about. There's three whole numbers. Yeah, there's three we that we're gonna to talk that about. You crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's there that the the three that we're talking about came out in 2002, 2006, and 2010 respectively. Um, and the general, uh, you know, what they're about is uh, you have this this company of men led by Johnny Knoxville who take part in you know various degrees of debauchery jackassery jackassery look like jackasses yeah they do over the course of generally like hour and a half long features um the 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 films are generally fragmented it's not there's no you know clear plot or narrative or through line it's just kind of uh segmented uh set pieces for i guess you know a, a, a phrase you know uh, where they're you know doing various things and it just kind of you know jumps from each one over the course of the of the runtime uh this is one that nathan has talked about pre on a previous episode and i'm sure he'll he'll talk again uh in a few minutes but uh michael and, and andrew i wanted to kind of start with you all because uh you are the 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 anti-jackass uh camp we're the faction. That's yeah. us. Michael, let's let's start with you. What are your, okay. your general feelings on um, <laughs> I feel like I want to start with some positive because it's going to be mostly <laughs> negative for me. Uh, Give the people what they want. Yeah, there's so like... Uh, there there are like moments in in Jackass that are like beams of light that are like really great. I'm gonna remember fondly for a long time. Um, and and most of these involve like the collision of like the Jackass crew with people who are not quite in the Jackass crew reacting to their their stunts. So like there's a scene in the or a sequence in Jackass one where. Uh, 
one of the character or one of the guys shoves a car, a toy car up his rectum and then goes to the doctor and gets an x-ray. Um, Ryan Dunn. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, like I had a legitimate good time, like with that sequence where the doctor describes that he has seen toy cars before, but not there. (laughs) (laughs) And the, uh, the x-ray technician who takes the you know x-ray negative off of the the you know fluorescent lights or whatever gives like this really long reaction shot that's just great (laughs) and um bam's parents are also like consistently great in how they react to like the the stunts imposing upon their like domesticity and for for us relatable too yeah it's like there's a part where I don't even remember what stunt it was, but Bam's mom says, why would you do that? And he says, because it was funny. She's like, no, it isn't. Fuck funny is her. That's what she said. And so that's a good segue into the fact that, like, in general, I did not find the antics very amusing at all. And I was like, one, and this is like probably like a, a feature of the films is that like I was made very uncomfortable and like grossed by a lot of this stuff but then also like and again this is I guess a feature of it like I felt like a lot of it is in bad taste which sure like there's like poop flying at the camera and stuff but also like just the general attitude and worldview that's like essentially like like materialist to the extreme like everything is about like getting some sort of sensory reaction out of people and like Mm -hmm. out of each other and like after a while like that's not that's not so much endearing as it is like legitimately to me like un unfun to experience this like incessant like guffawing at people's pain and discomfort Mm -hmm. yeah and and we can get more into you mentioned the word worldview. I think that there is kind of a worldview being yes. espoused by the the dudes here that we can get more into later. But I feel like it should not be a controversial statement to say that I think these movies are bad. Um, but apparently it <laughs> is. Uh, like we've had a lot of interactions on Letterboxd with people who uh, are are just. You know, in disbelief that Dis- we would disheartened and disappointed. Disheartened and disappointed. I mean, a lot of these people may listen to our podcast, so here, here we're going to go in depth on why we we feel like these movies are are not necessarily as cinematically redeeming as as people have kind of reclaimed them as being. For me, uh, you know, we live in a world where people look down look down upon uh you know mansplaining and white splaining i feel like i'm being splained to to a certain extent of like why these movies are actually this and actually that uh because i feel like i lived the culture of these movies in the mid 2000s and i know what the people who watch them actually get out of them and i don't want any part in that um i, I this is going to be very hard to talk about these films without bringing in like personal history so i'm just going to go ahead and do that here um we are we are young people as people who listen to this podcast know we have the young critics watch old movies series i was in middle school when these movies came out in early high school and my best friend in middle school in the first three years of high school was obsessed with these movies and i never actually watched them with him from front to back but he was kind of incessantly showing me clips we were listening to the music that is featured in the soundtracks of these movies like when i hear songs like i'm turning japanese or 
all my friends are dead. Like this takes me, like warps me back to middle school in a very uncomfortable way. I have to like reckon with these very embarrassing parts of my life that I have now <laughs> disowned. Uh, and to the point where um, this friend of mine and I would reenact or, or kind of make our own versions of jackass type stunts and film them and put them on YouTube. And I don't even remember like what they're labeled as anymore. People can maybe like do some deep dive research and try and find me as a middle schooler on YouTube. (laughs) It's there like duct taping ourselves to trees and like running over stuff with go-karts. And it's just, I remember the person that I was in middle school and like just how much of a stupid shit I was. <laughs> and I, people probably listen to this podcast and roll their eyes at me all the time of like being a very pretentious, like try hard intellectual. And I, that to a certain extent, that is a, uh, that is a reaction to the kind of person I was at this era of my life. And I, and I know that the, the, the crowd for these movies was not in it for the cinema. They were in it for the the grossness and the, the fetishization of like stupidness and being obnoxious and getting on other people's nerves and, and also like a mockery and putting putting other people down and, and laughing at their their suffering or their um, you know lack of perfection in societal standards or whatever. Uh, and while I watch these movies, I just feel uh, incredibly uh, grossed out and pained by uh, what what they are doing and what they are making me experience and relive. So that's that's my <laughs> that's my harsh take on the Jackass films. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, and I can I can see why it, it is difficult to like um, to parse feelings especially when it comes to uh who you were at like especially as like a middle school age it's such a, a an awkward uh <laughs> awkward stage of just anybody's life um and yeah i you know i'm i'm in the same I'm at the at the same point i'm i'm in the same camp as you uh i remember when these movies were coming out and there was that um there was that 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 breed of person that was uh, very much drawn to these movies when they were when they were coming out in the television shows, and I think as as a uh, yeah, I, I almost had like the opposite effect as you because when I was younger, I kind of was I I, I you know kind of. St- raised my nose to them and then and, and dismissed them because for for some reason i don't know I, I didn't want to associate myself with that uh with that type of culture um which was which made it ever this ever the more odd when i watched this these movies you know recently for this for this podcast and i'm not sure what what uh, what has directly changed? Maybe I just don't care that much, <laughs> but <laughs> but there was something, and I have I have a, a a giant roll your eyes. This is total bullshit. Uh, theory on 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 these movies that I was really like, you know, vibing with, but I don't know. There was something about the the first movie came out in two thousand two. And that's a a year after 9-11 happens. And 
for for just for some reason I I I just I read especially that movie and the second movie uh, especially as kind of these. You know, I, I think America as a whole, when when nine eleven happened, it kind of lost uh, a little bit of its vulnerability. I mean, of course, it, it it had elements of that after Vietnam and Korea, but I think nine eleven was a much more personal uh, attack just because it was on American soil and and in you know it, it it was something that seemed unfathomable up to that point and. Uh, so I think after so like in this in this post 9/11 world I felt I, I kind of just felt like jackass uh, and especially this first movie and the stunts that they were that they were performing and just this this recklessness and this devoid of care not for not necessarily just you know other people and their <laughs> feelings but also just their own you know, physical, uh, beings. It was like, they were just throwing themselves at whatever, because you would already been hit with this, you know, massive, uh, unfathomable national pain. And so now it was like, let's, it it was almost like, let's see how much more uh, we can, how much more we can take. It was like, let's, let's continue to uh, uh, see how far we can push the limits of, of just our, our physicality. And so with the first movie, I felt like it just was this deeply direct response to kind of that. And the second movie I was really taken with because it kind of got a little, it, it was much more personal. And I felt like there was these, there was these really cool moments between the characters. And I think that the cool moments that I'm reading you, uh, Michael and Andrew, you got, you all are probably reading them as, as very infantile and immature. And we can talk about that. Um, and then, but, and then the third movie to me, I felt like was the weakest of the, of the three of them. Uh, we, we talk about it a little bit in this, in the second part, but I think that at this point, like like the whole theory that I that I had about these movies kind of was was wearing thin. You know, it came out in 2010, uh, and I think that that and you can kind of feel that that wear on the on the men while they're performing the stunts in that movie. You could feel the kind of the kind of uh, finality and the and the sadness in it, especially when you take into account that Ryan Dunn. Uh, dies in a car crash a year after this is released um and that really had an impact on all of them but i don't know i i i i i, I can understand i guess that long rambling about the movie was me also saying i can understand that point of view um I just I don't under, I don't know where my <laughs> how I, I don't know if if my you know I don't, there's no I guess correct way of, of you know I think that both ways that we're seeing it is in a, in a similar form but in two different two different lights. I'm interested in going back to your political connections with Jackass One because like I don't disagree with you, but also like I feel like that and I mean we don't have to like be like getting like you know the nitty gritty of politics, but I feel like that the the U.S.'s response to 9/11 is at least a decade of problematic cultural yeah. uh, behavior. And so, like, and I don't, you know, we don't need to, like, hash out the politics, but I think, like, we it's could. interesting that, like, so Johnny Knoxville and, like, this attitude of 
um, the Jackass films. Like we we were talking, and Andrew mentioned that uh, something about his class about like uh, the Southern attitude of like yeah. doing stupid stuff. While we also had like a very Southern president who like you know really right. resonated in the South, and the way that like that kind of like impervious but boyish uh, masculinity like interacts with like the way that the nation saw itself mm-hmm. to me like I, th- I think it's true that this is like emblematic of a certain element of our culture but I don't mm-hmm. I guess I don't see a lot of pathos in that like I was reading like what right. you were saying I what I see is that this is like this is these are elements of our nation or even just of masculinity if we want to f- form that that I'm not like a huge fan of like this this idea that like men or, or masculinity is this constant like braying like like hilarity at like just these like kind of nihilistic situations mm-hmm yeah, and for context, Michael mentioned my class, and um, you know, I teach an American literature class this semester, and I, we started with a Southern Lit unit because I'm teaching in Tennessee. Um, and one of the questions that I asked my students as a writing activity was, "What does it mean to be Southern?" And um, I was thinking about one particular student's response because he he said uh, that for him, being st- Southern means being willing to do stupid stuff, uh, like go on stunts with a four wheeler and you know get into really dangerous situations. And I feel that that is very present in the ethos of Johnny Knoxville. Um, just kind of lit. And this has probably had to do with my childhood upbringing as well. Like being in a very rural part of the country, don't have a lot of things to do, like things to entertain kids aside from television and video games. So a big part of like growing up as a kid in the South is just like going outside and fucking around and, you know, putting yourself in dangerous right. situations. Well, I even lived in, in, in like the Memphis area, you know, not, not quite like the sticks, but we still found time to like roll each other down hills in 50 gallon drum barrels and right. And, right. And like that. And I think that we were also talking about these films as existing um, as, as a sort of c- tissue bet- between, um, you know, you have the 90s America's Funniest Home Videos culture and then the current, um, you know, post post 2000 or, or like 2010 uh, YouTube culture. Uh, we're, we're, we're currently living in a like post Logan Paul goes to Japan uh, scandal right now. Uh, and I was definitely getting that vibe from the first film, which has many extended sequences in Japan, including like Johnny Knoxville walking behind Japanese citizens and like banging a gong to surprise them. And it feels very of a piece with the current internet prank culture that exists. Um, and Again, I don't see that pathos or that sadness or that humanity come through these jackass films. And I think that the people who were watching them and admired them did not pick up on that either. And they kind of ran with the most <laughs> troubling aspects of it. Sorry, Nathan, go. I I just think the thing is, is at the end of the day, like you said earlier, you said, you know, I knew who the people were who were watching these and they weren't watching them for cinema. I mean, how many things do we all collectively as a foursome enjoy that most people who go to the theater to watch them do not give a fuck about cinema? Like, I don't think that even really enters into the question here at all. Like whether the the general audience for these things considers the, the, the cinematic qualities, uh, of them. That being said, I do think it is worth considering them just because of how strange it is that movies like these were released into multiplex theaters, that there are these disjointed 
fragmentary movies that you have the first one shot on mini DV tape. You have these strange moments where the camera like in the in the scene where Johnny Knoxville and Ryan Dunn are riding the golf carts and they crash and flip over like the camera like tumbles into the wet grass and you have all these like this brief moment where there are all these water droplets kind of reflecting off of the camera. And like, that's to me is like very worth considering that is just such a strange image, like to have just, you know, to go to the mall and see that is, is really astounding to me. Um, and I also think that there is something to go to this question about, about Southernness. Um, I took uh, my senior year of, of undergrad, I took an American studies class. We did a unit on Southern studies and we had this guest lecturer come in to kind of give us an intro to Southern studies as a concept. And she talked about how kind of within the United States, the, the South as a place sort of functions as this wound, as this place whose identity is never resolved, that is always hurting or suffering in some way. And the rest of the country, whenever it screws up, can point to the South who is always bleeding, who is always in pain and say, well, like, at least we're not the South. And I yeah. feel like, you know, it's I mean, sure, it's not at all intentional, um, but I think that there's a way in which Johnny Knoxville's body and particularly becomes like the reenactment of that site, of that site of like this woundedness and just having to like stab yourself over and over again um, for, you know, for no reason at all. Um, but it just keeps happening. And I also think just real quick before, um, I, I really agree Zach with a lot of the points that you made. And I think there's some kind of idea where after, you know, nine 11 happens, like in our cultural narrative, the period after this is like this sort of, um, kind of adolescent period. And, and I think for, for, uh, men in particular, adolescence is like the time in which we are confronted by our bodies. And I mean, obviously the guys in Jackass are not adolescents and are mm -hmm. far past adolescence, even if they may mentally seem to and, and emotionally still seem to be there. Uh, but I think that there is some way in which like this desire for adolescent boys to see this kind of dangerous stuff and then reenact it themselves. It's kind of like adolescence is in some ways sort of this laboratory of identity where we're sort of growing into our bodies. We're testing the limits of our bodies. We are being reminded that we do in fact have a body. And I feel like jackass is just kind of like, I don't know, this, this, uh, crucible for that sort of testing and elasticity of, of, of the body. Um, and one last thing, sorry, I have just had a lot of points getting stocked up <laughs> 20 minutes of this, but for me, a lot of the, the kind of the pathos and the emotion and the sincerity, a lot of it may be a sort of retroactive reading, like reading it after Ryan Dunn's death. Um, for me, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, most people who have been listening to the podcast for a while know probably that I really love fast and furious. Um, and there are a number of sort of uncomfortable parallels between the two. I mean, they both have the stunt warnings. Uh, they both have, um, you know, this, they're, they're very masculine and have this focus on the male body. Um, but there's also very much rooted in the sense of family. And even though these guys are doing these really mean pranks to each other, I also feel like it is grounded at the end of the day in this sense of kinship and friendship, um, that these guys, you know, they, they test their friendship and then they keep going. Um, 
And there are these just moments, like especially in the first movie, that are just heartbreaking to me now. Like the moment I mentioned earlier where Ryan Dunn flips the golf cart over and Johnny Knoxville says, Ryan, you're such a terrible driver. Or in the Son of Jackass sequence at the very end of the movie where you see Ryan Dunn in this ridiculous old man makeup, like made to look older than he would ever actually live to be. And that stuff is, you know, it's totally like it's not there in the text itself. It's totally like me projecting upon it. But when I see it, it's just like deeply unsettling and, and adds this other layer to the movie for me. Um, I'll, I'll stop monopolizing the mic, but I just really wanted to, 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 to cut in and speak my piece. I, I, and I, I like get that in the abstract, but I think that like, for me, this feels really abstract. Like the, these ideas of like, you know, the kind of pure cinema elements or like the kind of, uh, metatextual elements of it feel really, uh, that, that's a very distant, like, I can, it's like looking at a skyscraper from a distance and then you get up to the skyscraper. Like, from a distance, I'm like, oh, that looks really cool. And then I get up to it and I see, like, cigarette butts and, uh, you know, refuse at the, like, in the alley behind the, mm-hmm. the skyscraper. And I feel like one of the big things that's, like, distracting me from, like, those readings is just, like, I can't escape, like like the like who is doing these stunts and i don't mean like specifically johnny knoxville but like the fact that like these are like you know men in their 20s and 30s and the fact that they are doing this as opposed to like you know the virtual non-existence of women in these movies or whatever just kind of like and the way that their their behavior which is like i feel like in a lot of other contexts would raise big flags or like be viewed as like you know intensely otherized so like the the obsessive like genitalia and like the genital like almost mutilation of it or definitely self-mutilation you know pushing fish hooks through your cheeks and having like uh you know poop and 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 puke and and piss and all that like thrown around like like these are things that like in other contexts are viewed as like extremely like off putting in, in ways that like we would say are un-American right so like we see in like National Geographic like look at these strange people from other countries who have these strange piercings you know where mm-hmm. and we see um, you know people like literally pierce themselves in these movies and it's the veneer of it is not of how strange is this the veneer to me is that boys will be boys like that these are just guys joking around haha aren't guys dumb and I I just I guess I just couldn't get over that this was all like the the consistency of tone of like we're just goofing around kind of stuff whereas like the the behavior is so extreme that I feel like if these guys were anyone else you know besides just like white dudes this would be viewed as extremely like out there and there's also some um you know, you mentioned the mid-2000s being like a very problematic time in America, that being reflected in the way that these white dudes kind of uh, project their jokes onto other people. Uh, Zach, you were talking about this being a post-9-11 franchise. We got to talk about how at the end of the second one, there's an extended joke where somebody pretends to be a terrorist and dresses up in blackface and a big beard made out of pubes and pretends to blow up a I think he's not. Cab. I think his face isn't technically darkened. I think he's uh, just... I think it is, though. Uh, maybe I'm misremembering that. He's definitely Really got um, fake fake beard though. Yeah, but but but, pl- uh, but playing up that uh, that cultural stereotype about you know all people from the Middle East are terrorists or all Muslims are terrorists. There's also the 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 scene in the second one where like there is a legit 
like sexual violation of Bam's mother where they uh, kind of swap her husband out with another large man who like begins to grope her in the middle of the night. And the joke is like, ha ha ha, she didn't see that coming. Like this is, it's just not funny uh, in a very uh, like intimate personal way um, that was hard for me to get over. And I, maybe that's me being a 2018 like liberal snowflake, but for, for these movies to be- I, I think it is me being- a liberal snowflake because like I, I like I was saying like I get in the abstract what you guys are saying but I can't get over this yeah and, and I can't revel in the like mindless playful fun of it because it is so much like tethering itself to things with yeah, real world grounded in a, a reality yeah well I um I don't know I think you Michael to your point about like other people doing this I think um to me one of the like most uh, telling and important moments in any of the movies is in Jackass 2 when there is a John Waters cameo. I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah. let's talk about that. A long tradition uh, um, of the same kind of behavior in, in John Waters movies. Um, obviously, you know, functioning within a different context and, and being more explicitly like um, the relationship between this kind of shock value and, and, uh, queerness um and repression in society so i feel like the fact that john waters uh co-signs these movies uh to me is kind of telling and i feel like there is a way in in which there is something about these movies like that you have this group of ostensibly state straight guys with their dicks out constantly uh that there is like something about that where it's like you know they're doing this stupid shit but at the same time it is at the very least for me, refreshing to see a group of men who are like 100 percent comfortable with their bodies and with each other's bodies. Um, That is like a type of of masculine behavior that, you know, even if it may be couched in all of this other stuff that that we can consider heinous or reprehensible, that is like, I don't know, a different strain of masculinity. And I think something that still exists apart from dominant culture, um, even if there are other ways in which it's not, in which it is very much reinforcing, uh, uh, certain more regrettable things. I guess I may have different experiences than you, but I definitely remember a lot of nakedness in my middle school years. Yeah. Like I remember, I, I remember yeah. playing, like I remember lots of games eventually escalated to the strip version of that game, you know, <laughs> ping pong yeah. became strip ping pong and things like that, that like, you know, we weren't, we weren't shaving each other's pubes or whatever, but I think like there's a similar, like, like the boyishness and I, the, the pervasiveness. And this only gets evoked once in the, or maybe twice in the, in the trilogy, but the pervasiveness of no homo where like yeah. masculine culture requires you to be like deeply obsessed with each other's like, uh, private acts. Um, you know, whether that's like but, scatological but distancing or yourself from the implication, like Johnny Knoxville wears a shirt that says totally straight, uh, with like a rainbow font and a unicorn on it. It feels like a mid 2000s version of no homo. To me, I, you know, seeing the shirt that said totally straight, like didn't read necessarily as like a no homo to me, it almost read more like, uh, like a, a ironic kind of, I, th- I think I would be willing to, read the movies in the same way that you do, Nathan, like as a John Waters type revival 
if I got the vibe that any of these guys were anywhere on the spectrum other than totally straight. Um, I definitely got like, a little bit of those vibes, it, though. Uh, in a way, but like... I think that it's different when John Waters does this kind of like uh, scatological transgressive stuff than when somebody who is, like you said, Nathan, ostensibly straight uh, does it. Kind of like representing this this hegemony of like straightness, whiteness, maleness. Um, they kind of get a pass to do all this boys will be boys stuff that, you know, John Waters was doing for like actual political transgressiveness. Uh, but here it's like just, um, you know, r- absurdity. And it's kind of unquestioned in a way that John Waters wasn't necessarily. Um, but I'm not an expert in John Waters, so I should probably not talk about his movies. I don't want to assume anything about anyone's sexualities in here just because as much private stuff as I see of theirs, I still, we're still you know, you still never know about, about people. Um, and I also feel, I don't know, I, there's just like some, like, I don't know. I, I just see something in some of these guys like that is kind of charming, like Chris Pontius and, mm-hmm. and Steve-O just like have a certain presence that I find just like is, is like very warm in some weird way. Um, no, I, 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 no, I agree with you. Um, the, the, the one moment I, I, think of with steve-o is in the is in the third movie i i really liked steve-o a lot he was probably my favorite out of the entire group because i mean how can you not love somebody who has a tattoo of their own face on their back yeah well (laughs) well, the 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 moment of his that i loved was in the third movie and the the prank was uh preston who is the heavyset guy was had this suit that was gonna take his sweat as he goes on like a stairmaster and then steve-o was gonna drink the sweat and it was this deeply disgusting thing because you have this cup of sweat that is just coming from all over his body. Um, and Steve-O, you know, of course, just throws it down, begins immediately just vomiting everywhere. And you would think that he would, you know, I don't, I don't know how he, how else he would react, but his immediate reaction is just like, uh, you know, he, he, he kind of you know goes to his friend and is like yeah it's it's you know it, 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 like everything was fine he wasn't there was no animosity or anything toward you know that that would have ruptured the friendship it was just it was almost like this was work like it like it, it like like no harm no foul this was work granted it was drinking sweat which was, it was disgusting but i i don't know i think that there is like this 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 some some degree of of charm to these guys because uh maybe maybe i'll 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 step in the in the trap here but i i think that there's a, a degree of harmlessness to their to, to to their actions um this is sort of a point you made maybe 30 seconds ago or something like that but like do you do you think that these guys like are okay with each other by the end of the trilogy because like at the in the third movie it seems a little strained to me and like part of this seems to like physical like their body like they're 10 years older almost than like when they started mm-hmm. the jackass stuff and their bodies are just there's sequences where they seem to be legitimately injured in ways that they weren't in right. like the other ones but then there's also sequences where they seem legitimately mad at each other in ways yeah. that they weren't either and they I let the post prank play out a lot longer in the third one right like there's the one and I, I forget who it is but like he he gets pranked and then at the end he's like 
I'm so glad I'm leaving by three. Maybe I'll call and get an earlier flight. And he, right. like, it's not like, like everyone else is laughing, but he seems legitimately pissed at that moment. And right. there's like a few other moments like that. I always wonder about Dave England because throughout all the movies, he seems to be the one who's like having the least fun and always yeah, looks I agree. sad. Yeah. Maybe it's just like he serves some function as a baby face, just like he looks sad. So that's his function within the group. But I have always kind of wondered about him, like how into this actually are you? But I do. I, there is something. um about the moments where it does play out longer after, like in the second one too, when Bam and Johnny get shot and Bam, you hear him say like, I just wanted to skateboard. I didn't want to get shot at. Um, where, I don't know. It's like something about those moments of realness when they cut through as like deeply uncomfortable as they are, um, in the way that they offset everything else. Like, I feel like they are, have, have a certain value. Um, I don't know, good or bad. Yeah, well, I I think that it it you know to to really reach back, I think that a lot of the the stunts and kind of the reaction to what happens kind of goes back to uh, vaudevillian days, and you know, I, I you think of some of the 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 stunts that somebody like Buster Keaton performs. And you have um, a girl, one I'm, I'm, uh, allusion to Buster Keaton in the second one. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the one stunt that Buster Keaton does in Sherlock Jr. where he's pulling on the uh, the water spigot thing and then falls. And in real life, he injured his back and he and like it, you know, never really healed correctly. But there's, you know, there's something about that again goes back to the charm of much like you know somebody like Keaton where these guys and in, in the jackass movies um just roll with with the pain like like they get hit with this you know insurmountable amount of of pain and, and misery but i think they do play it off to an to an extent and that's what's so strange going back to michael's point about the third movie because it they i think i think there is some some wear on it i think that they are getting tired and i think that they are uh probably getting tired of each other to an extent and there's something that's kind of human about that like i i I guess i wasn't necessarily i was sad but i also wasn't sad because i think that that's just natural like 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 after a while you i mean we we talked about this at the beginning of this section of the podcast where there there's a part of you that after a while you probably get tired of and you kind of work your way out of and so maybe that's what this third movie is compared to the other two right i appreciated seeing them in a in to a certain extent grow out of it in the third uh, episode as as and even though that leads to the stunts maybe being not as extreme or not as ambitious, um, there there was a little bit more humanity in that last section. But for the vast majority of all three of these movies, I watch them and don't see that that charmingness that you, uh, Zach and Nathan, do uh, because I again I see myself and the person that I dis- like decided not to be and can't imagine being as a grown man and i look at somebody like johnny knoxville as like somebody who never grew out of that and it's it's like reprehensible to a certain extent to me uh, and i can't get over that that sounds like a personal problem that sounds like something you need to you know 
work out on your own. But I don't think it's just me. Like, I think that if I ran into a person like Johnny Knoxville in the street, no matter who I was, I and you see that with the, the public bystanders of these movies, like... They want nothing to do with him. He's he's a menace, and and I don't mean to sound like a an old man like uh, yelling on his front porch or anything. But there's there's a reason why we teach teenage boys to grow out of this bullshit because we need a functioning society. I wonder, like, uh, I mean, maybe then we can find a sort of value in Jackass because it seems like Jackass helped you grow out of. Uh, that that shit but it also I mean, straight it also relate it, it um reflects a type of extension of adolescence that happens uh with like the millennial generation and in incur- you read a like uh like 19th century literary criticism love and death in the american novel that shit's all old the american man child thing going way back Okay, yeah. but like you, you can't deny the one-to-one correlation of what's going on in, in Jackass and like these obnoxious personas and what we see in YouTube prank culture and the Logan Paul bullshit. Like, don't don't say that there's this is a like a net positive for society. I, I don't, I really don't see that. I know, I, see- I know, I know. I know. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, I do think though there is, um, you know, you've mentioned some of the negative thing, things that have come out of. Uh, jackass but I do think there are some legitimate positives like I think you look at something like the Eric Andre show which is um, pretty seems to me pretty clearly inspired by jackass and also probably by the Tom Green show um, where but but the the fact that you have uh, men of color like going out doing these kind of pranks I feel like adds a, a layer of maybe more legitimate transgressiveness to it Um so I do think there maybe has been a, a positive, uh, some positive descendants of Jackass and not just Logan Paul. Um, although I will say that I, I saw some clips of Logan Paul in Japan and I was also reminded of the first movie as much as I may uh, enjoy, enjoy these things. Um, so I wonder if also, I mean, to bring in another kind of thing that's maybe just like our problem but like both Andrew and I are high school teachers and so like we are constantly confronted with like I guess like just just adolescence in general which is like often very charming and and interesting and I enjoy being around but also like we we also like have to deal a lot with like the more like troubling aspects of people being immature and kind of not quite regarding each other with empathy and like valuing Mm -hmm. laughs over like someone else's comfort and things like that that kind of in a way, like, I can imagine if I were in a, like, if I didn't see that a lot on a day-to-day level, I could view that as, like, that's part of my past that I've moved moved beyond, whereas, mm-hmm. like, on a professional level, I have to deal with it. And so, like, this isn't quite, like, I grew out of it, and so, therefore, like, I don't have to, that's the end, and I've matured. It's, like, I see other people who are influenced by culture like this, and it troubles me. Right. I see the scene at the beginning of the first one where Johnny Knoxville is uh, arguing with the rental car people of like, I'm not paying for this. You're going to pay for this. I'm not going to pay for this. You're going to pay for this. And I think about the kind of conversations we have with our students where you, you try to insist to them, like you cannot act like this with adults in the real world. And Johnny Knoxville's like, yes, you can. Ha ha ha. Um, and it, it does seem to be a, a sort of permissive uh, gesture to like allow uh, teenage boys to like continue to be their worst selves as long as they want. <laughs>
Well, it got very quiet. We've ran it. We we've we've it's been it's 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 been a while. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to. We're gonna have to wrap it up. Um, does anybody have any any last real quick thoughts before we we close this part? I think it's amazing that a movie exists in which uh, John Waters, Juicy J, and Tony Hawk are all together. Even if they may not literally be together in the same scene, they are united. Uh, and, and Three Six Mafia, if we want to tie this into a future uh, right. Tennessee Auteurs movie. Hustle and Flow, it's coming. Juicy J. Uh, did not win his Oscar for, for J- Jackass 2, but he should have. <laughs> um, well, we will be back talking about Jackass some more, but a little bit more, I would say, in a... I don't know. It's about the same as this, really. It's uh, not really that much about Jackass. Yeah, but uh, we're going to be talking with Blake Williams about 3D filmmaking and a lot of other stuff, so please stick around for the second part. Hi there, Cinematary listeners. This is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr, with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we surprisingly do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. Firstly, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a positive one, because apparently this will help increase our podcast exposure. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at cinematary at yahoo.com so we can hear from you guys for a change. Maybe you can tell us where the money from Fargo is stashed, or maybe you don't think In the Mood for Love is the sexiest movie you've ever seen. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think really enjoy listening to us and participating in our film discussions. We also have some cool merchandise that you can check out on the site. So to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and share with your friends and family. We would truly appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. back with part two of episode 187 of Cinematary. Uh, in this part, we will be continuing our Tennessee Auteur series with 2010's Jackass 3D. Uh, but before that, I want to welcome our very special guest, Mr. Blake Williams. Uh, he's going to come on and talk with us a little bit about uh, 3D filmmaking, uh, his uh, his own film that he is premier- showing at Big Ears, as well as just kind of that festival at large. Um, Blake, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, 
so I guess real briefly before we get into the uh, kind of discussion on on the film, uh, do you mind kind of talking about your involvement with Big Ears? I'm sure we'll we'll cover that a lot uh, later in this in this portion, but just kind of give a, a brief overview of your uh, connection to that festival. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been friends with Darren Hughes uh, from uh, for a number of years from uh, his attendance at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I live in Toronto, and um, it's. I think this is the third year that they've been doing the film portion of the uh, Big Ears Festival. And I went for the first time last year and had an amazing time uh, with the programming there. And he, after he found out I made this 3D feature, he basically just asked me to uh, be a guest programmer for this year and just to curate a a selection of 3D movies and like a a few short programs, some features. And uh, and so, yeah, I I agreed. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, for the last uh, three or four months, we've been uh, vigorously trying to put a program together and it's finally shaping up. We actually finally approved our, our final film uh, this afternoon. <laughs> and Jackass 3D was one of those films on that list. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the other 3D features playing at Big Ears are? Yeah, we have a couple from a New York-based uh, avant-garde icon uh ken jacobs uh he's been basically working in different modes of stereo uh filmmaking and image making since i don't know at least the 1960s so like more than 50 years now and um and so we're going to show a a a couple of his recent projects one is a very political work that he made during the occupy movement uh called seeking the monkey king uh and then we're going to show something he made last year with another uh, 3D uh, experimental image group uh, called Open Ended Group uh, called uh, Ulysses in the Subway, which is a project that uh, visualizes an audio recording that uh, Ken and his partner Flo Jacobs uh, did while they were riding through the New York subway system. Uh, and then beyond that, it'll be a bit more. Uh, uh, I guess a couple of mainstream, I mean, we had a couple of mainstream projects. We have the Jackass film, obviously, but also um, going back a little bit deeper into history, we're showing um, Alfred Hitchcock's one 3D movie that he made in 1954, uh, Dial in for Murder, um, which actually upon its release, kind of, it showed at its world premiere in 3D, but the reaction to it was so negative that its general release was only in 2D. And so uh, it had a very uh, limited theatrical 3D rollout. And so uh, it had a re-release a few years ago when they did the restoration that was coming out with the Blu-ray. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very difficult film to see in 3D. And so we're happy to show that as a kind of uh, 1950s Hollywood 3D wave that lasted about two years. Uh, We're going to show Herzog's cave movie, Dreams uh, from 2010, um, Goodbye to Language, one of the most experimental uh, 3D mm-hmm. films ever made from 2014, and uh, yeah, maybe one or two others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but uh, and then my movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just that little one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's, oh, I, I feel like we'll probably circle back to, especially your movie, we'll, we're going to kind of work that in, um, but 
I wanted to first start off, you know, with the the topic of this of this episode, which is Jackass 3D, um, and we've covered the 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 films kind of content wise up to this point. And so, with you, I, I wanted to kind of talk about uh, the use of this technology for this film because I feel like with 3D, um, for the most part, in, in terms of mainstream films, uh, it, it kind of seems almost like a cash grab for studios. They, you know, it's not like they you know unless it's, it's somebody like James Cameron or Christopher Nolan it's not really like somebody's you know filming the movie with 3D in mind it's kind of a post production thing um so in the in the case of Jackass 3D did you find that they that it's it's a movie that's kind of trying to do do stuff with the form do stuff with the technology or was it just kind of a cash grab because it was the third movie they could t- you know make it 3d and that's easy <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i i mean it's it's probably a little both i mean um i mean it is part of what uh, a, a couple of scholars have written about it as a as this phenomenon of of um having the third entry in a in a film franchise being like the 3d one like step up 3d and um <laughs> spy kids 3d jaws 3d <laughs> the amityville 3d 13 3d uh, and um, and it is this kind of playing into this franchise connoisseurship that you get from rewarding people who uh have seen the entire all of the entries in a specific franchise by basically pr- giving them the the favorite iconic uh, uh, stylistic flourishes from the franchise, but in an exaggerated way that kind of rewards their their repeated uh, engagement with the series. So in that sense, I, I do think there is a certain uh, you know uh, commercial value that they're playing into that. But I, I mean, it's also Jackass 3D, so it's it's kind of making fun of that at the same time um, by by uh, you know throwing excrement and sewage and and piss and shit and all sorts of things in your face and uh, basically making you uh, feel like you're going to pass out. And so it's um, it's a it's 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 something that I it's it's a film that I teach in my 3D class that I, as we begin to start talking about. Uh, viscera and visceral filmmaking, uh, which kind of leads us into discussions about more like tactile uh, ways of engaging with the cinematic image, uh, because making uh, uh, certain decisions that are, you know, it's, it's, it's playing with pranks and certain uh, images of a type of masculinity, but at the same time, it's also playing with issues of the body and, uh, and, and directly engaging with the kind of refuse of the human body and, and, and having people's body and the things that are inside their bodies and and their you know with their urine and with their feces and and sewage and vomit and all these things it's 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 playing with the surface of the image in a way that's very uh unique and also uh kind of almost an epitome of a certain way of thinking about 3d filmmaking so in so you had an interview in cinemascope and i think you, you say something that kind of, I think, maybe connects to what you're saying now about, um, and I, I had to look up this term, uh, the haptic visuality, um, which I, I, I'm, I'm kind of gleaning is, is sort of uh, disrupting the distance between viewer and the screen where you were talking about 3D brings them into the content. 
of the film, um, talking about, you know, the effect is not so much on the screen. This is your quote. Um, it becomes like in the glasses and in your own head. And um, you talked about, uh, you know, it throwing like, you know, excrement at the audience. Like, how do you feel like, is what Jackass 3D is doing, like, by using the kind of like transgressive, like, viscera, like you said, does that make this like a fundamentally different 3D experience than like say like I don't know like Avatar in 3D or uh, you know how does that collapsing of distance affect how people view Jackass versus like other 3D movies? Yeah, I I mean it's a question. I don't know if I answer. I mean when I'm talking about like <laughs> the haptic visuality, I'm pulling from like uh, from certain like scholars, like uh, specifically uh, a writer named Laura Marks who um, is is writing about the difference between a kind of optical uh, visuality like when you're basically when you're looking at a film at, at a film image uh, you are kind of gazing at a uh, at a space in a somewhat voyeuristic way like there's a kind of remove where you have your position and you're looking at the screen and you're looking at bodies who are moving in a space and kind of observing how they occupy that space but then with this more haptic style of visuality you often get from uh, like close up it's less about looking at something from a, a remove but it's more about feeling as, as though you're almost in contact with it or like you can touch it like you can touch the, the of, of the film with your eyes in a, in a way and like you can you can feel the texture of of the screen and of the body of the bodies on screen and in a way the film itself be, starts to become synonymous with the body and you start to feel like uh, regardless of the fact that there may be a human subject on screen, like the film itself starts to seem so it has a skin and uh, and and it takes on this kind of form. And so uh, when we're talking about uh, with uh, 3D-ness uh, in, in this context, it's it's kind of just thinking about this body as, as I guess, just having more of a volume and having more of a character and, and it, and it starts to have kind of like an attitude. And, and the thing with something like Jackass 3D, which I, when I'm teaching it, I'm always uh, using it as a, as a kind of pairing with uh, talking about 3D pornography. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot about having to do with projectiles and things that are coming out of the screen at you. Uh, fluids that are coming out of the screen and my favorite moment in Jackass 3D or at least the one that I find the easiest to kind of talk about the 3D-ness as being an essential part of the, of the movie is is the part where um, I can't remember which, which, which guy it is but where when he puts the camera next to his uh, penis and starts peeing on everybody because <laughs> yeah. it, it's kind of like this inversion of the moment in, in like uh, Gaspar Noe's Love 3D or in uh, some of the 60s and 70s uh, 3D films where they're having cum shots that come out of the screen and, and seem as if they're going to land on your face it's kind of an inversion where you're actually kind of projecting into the screen in this moment but in, in, a, in a similar in a similar way <laughs> that's this is going to sound like a weird comment to make after talking about the urinating sequence, urinating on the stranger <laughs> sequence. But, um, you know, all of us on the Cinemary Show team, of course, watched this movie in 2D because we were not at Big Ears when we watched it. And we're looking forward to going to Big Ears and rewatching it there. But um, it, one thing that Michael and I were talking about is how Jackass 3 almost feels toned down in a way uh, in terms of the kinds of stunts and, and the amount of pain that you're feeling when compared to Jackass number two. Do you feel like, and I, I feel like I know the answer to this, but is it 
the the lack of pain and the lack of extremity is that offset by the visual quality that the 3D brings to the film? Like, what do you think this movie gains from the the 3D uh, projection, or does it does it even work in 2D? Well, I, I haven't actually seen it in. First of all, I haven't actually seen it in 2D, but I oh, wow. also I also haven't seen it in proper 3D because I've only seen it um, in my in my classroom with my students where we don't have an actual 3D projector, so I have to show it in, a, in an anaglyph version. So I converted it into the you know the, like the old school red blue type of 3D, right. and so I mean you still get the 3D effects, but it's not like the full color version. But um, it's uh, a number of my students always point out how how the film at least in comparison to the other movies that we're watching in the class, um, feels like the most two-dimensional of, of the films that we watch. And I think there are actually a number of stunts in the movie that were shot um, without a 3D camera. Uh, and one thing, it, it, it could be something to do with budget or it could be something to do with practicality of having a 3D camera in certain scenes. Um, but... Um, it's, it also, I think, I find makes the moments where it, it cuts to a new sequence that is actually in 3D, I think, more affecting because there's always this kind of 3D, I, I don't know if it's fatigue is the right word, but a kind of complacency or something where you're watching a 3D movie and after a while, the 3Dness kind of goes away because you become used to it in the same way that like when you're looking at the world with your own eyes in 3D, um, you're not really... Uh, you know, cognizant of the fact that there's <laughs> yeah. depth, like a, an extreme amount of depth in, in, in every uh, moment of, of your vision. And so you, you kind of adapt to it. And there's a, a novelty to when uh, to the 3D image of when you first see it and, and the, uh, the effect of having certain objects coming closer to you or certain things going into the screen space uh, that kind of becomes normalized as you're as you're with it for for. 15, 20 minutes, but when you go back and forth from these different sequences, it, it is it is kind of uh, it, it, it's always reinstating and re refreshing that moment of uh, of of the novelty of it for your eyes, and so it doesn't really ever go away or, or wear down. But um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I it's been so long since I've seen the other Jackass films that I don't really remember certain structural things. But I mean, one of the things about Jackass 3D is that it be opens and closes with these very long, very produced right. uh, sequences of uh, like super slow motion, uh, like set explosions and, and 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 with it seems like most of the budget, like probably eighty percent of the budget, was spent on these <laughs> opening and closing. <laughs> yeah, uh, where and that's where most of the 3D really is, and and having all these particles flying all over the room and you can really feel the depth of that image uh which is funny because i think a lot of the appeal of a movie like jackass being in 3d like when you first hear about it is the idea of all the uh like all the the puke and all the the more disgusting bits of the movie those aspects being in 3d and while they are there and i think some of them are actually very satisfying uh most uh notably the porta body uh bungee jump uh, <laughs> I, I, I it does seem like a lot of it is kind of uh maybe not taking it 
the most advantage of the 3D, but I find that when it actually is using it, uh, it's it's doing it really well, and it's 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 doing it in a, in a way that's it's still kind of hokey and dumb in a in a, in a way that you would hope a Jackass film to be, like having the cameraman vomit as as a cameraman always has to vomit during a Jackass uh, show <laughs> or a movie, but of course he has to vomit into the camera. Uh, onto his camera, uh, he can't vomit to the side. He has to vomit into his camera, so you feel like you're getting vomited on. I guess um, with the 3D aspect, but uh, yeah, this, this might be a, a kind of a, a broader question than than just the the Jackass movie. But um, is there a, a kind of a misconception that people have about this technology that? Uh, you you know always like to clarify like as somebody who who studies it you know pretty intently is there something that you know the the average moviegoer who just kinds of kind of kinds of sees it like a like a gimmick or a addition to an attraction uh, maybe are missing. Yeah, I mean, I mean the thing that is always the biggest hump to get over uh, with my students is um, is that it's. It's, you know, it's a purely visual component of the movie. And one of the problems that visual formats always have when they're being uh, introduced to uh, uh, the mainstream is that you have to be able to justify that this is beneficial to the narrative. And so that's something that I talk about in my very first classes when we're, uh, and, and I compare the introduction of 3D to the introduction of color cinema and the fact that you always have this... Um, when you're introducing a new form, whether it's color or 3D or, or widescreen cinema, uh, you have to, there's always this kind of way at the beginning where uh, you, the format is kind of demonstrating what it can do and trying to assert what it can do and justify its necessity by exaggerating every stroke. And uh, the color in early colors is extremely vibrant, like distractingly vibrant. And the, are redder than any reds you've ever seen and the blues and the greens. Uh, and then there's always this kind of backlash period where um, it's that it's distracting from the narrative suffering because of this uh, visual format. And so then kind of enter this moment where it becomes more subdued and, and very restrained. And then there's always a compromised mode that kind of takes over that's um, where it reasserts itself uh, and its vibrancy, but it, it, it asserts itself as kind of uh, able to be uh, uh, accommodated and accommodating to narrative uh, because ultimately the institution of, of cinema, uh, at least for the last hundred years, has been geared towards narrative and storytelling. And so if you can't uh, serve that, then you end up being kind of uh, stigmatized and, and deemed a gimmick. And I think 3D more than any of the other formats has struggled to overcome that. And that's why it's always kind of gone away for certain periods of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, when it comes, it's, it's very exciting and, and feels new, but, uh, I think it, it, it I don't, I think we've done the best job so far this time, and which is why it's kind of stayed around more than three years. But um, yeah. but it's it's always difficult to kind of talk about 3D as a way 
that's not just talking about, oh, was it, did the movie in 3D? Uh, just because when you go to watch a movie in color nowadays, you know, it's, it's just kind of understood as being in color. Like, you don't watch a movie and think, oh, well, did that really need to be in color? Mm-hmm. Like, could have been white. Like, you wouldn't do that just because it's kind of a fact that movies are in color now. Um, you know, there's no real reason why films wouldn't need to be the same way. Like, where a film is just kind of understood as being 3D as opposed to one it's in 3D and it has to justify itself and its 3Dness. Right. It doesn't do a good job of just superfluous and and has done a bad job and 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 you can be critical of it for that. And so, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's like a it's just a way of kind of getting beyond the the idea that there needs to be a kind of uh, justification of uh, of the films uh, that accommodates the narrative where I prefer to think of it the other way around, that the movie's content needs to kind of justify itself. <laughs> On the point you were making a minute ago about 3D constantly falling out of fashion, this is something that gets brought up in your CinemaScope interview as well. Um, you talk about how you you think the 3D medium is a perpetual infant, you say, um, and because it's always trying to kind of be reborn and, and make, make itself new. Um, and you talk about how because people are trying to justify the use of 3D, it ends up being a form of play and, and a, a kind of a childlike play. Do you feel like that is particularly relevant in the context of Jackass where you have, you know, I, I don't think it's controversial to say immature actors uh, and, and producers making this movie. Uh, is, this, is that part of the appeal? Like, is this a, a perfect mode for this kind of man child to play around in with all of their own excreta and all that stuff? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think in many ways it's kind of one of the, you know, the, the emblematic 3D films ever made for that for that very reason the fact that it is this um, I mean I don't know if it's necessarily fun, a fundamental component of 3D filmmaking as as much as it is just kind of a, a matter of of circumstance and the fact that it's uh, un, you know unlike color as I was mentioning earlier it's it's uh, it never really became standardized and was able to mature and become integrated into the standard operating procedures of cinemas and institutional cinema. And so every time it comes around, whether it be in the fifties or in the eighties or, uh, here again in the last 10 years, it's, it's, it's always, yeah, being reborn. And so it's always young and it's always having to, uh, learn a language. It's, it's, it's always kind of learning how it needs to behave, which is, you know, just like how little, a little per, a little kid acts and they don't really understand the morals of how the world works and so it has to just do its own thing until it figures out how to behave in a way that doesn't call attention to itself and that's kind of the nice thing i think about 3d is that it's always um it's always noticed it's always there um but at the same time it's it's also ends up being a drawback just because of this problem like i was mentioning that it's it has to it has to justify itself, and it, and it needs to accommodate the narrative. But yeah, with uh, and I guess it's kind of an irony of the way it's used in Jackass because it is a little bit subdued, it, with the exception of certain moments where it, it becomes really <laughs> the opposite of subdued. If I can maybe turn this around um, on you, like so, you've made 
a few 3D films at this point. Um, do you feel like when you approach 3D, is there like a language that you've grasped or is each film kind of like, do you feel like reinventing or going back to that infant stage of, of 3D? Yeah, I don't know. It, I don't know if I would be the right person to answer that question, actually. But um, I mean, every, I've, I made four short films that were in 3D and then I just uh, finished my first feature. And so... Each one does a different thing. Each one uses the 3D in a different way. Um, and that has a lot to do with the fact that just in general, whether I'm working in 3D or not, I, I never like to repeat myself. And uh, I, I, I don't really like to repeat certain visual strategies uh, from film to film. And so just in that sense, each film is uh, made as a process of kind of discovering how something works or how certain images work together and work uh, in response to the 3d strategy that I'm using in, in a given film. And so it's, um, in that sense, they're, they're more kind of each film is kind of a thought process of thinking through a certain strategy of trying to make sense of, of, of the theme of the film, uh, in, in, uh, conjunction with the, the visual strategy. And so, I guess in that sense, there's a certain immaturity to the sen the sensation that you might get from it. Not immature mm -hmm. in the sense that the the like the making of it is from an immature uh, yeah. sensibility, but just like a, a kind of lack of self awareness. Like it's 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 a film that's it's films that are always I, at least, and this is something that I hope that they achieve. That films that are kind of trying to figure themselves out. Um, before your eyes, like you're kind of thinking along with the film. Uh, at least that's yeah, the, kind of the intent. And so, yeah, I, I guess in that sense, there's a, you might equate that with a kind of youthfulness. It's possible. I wanted to ask, um, what is the experience of teaching 3D like? Um, just because I think it's interesting that you're approaching it both as a film artist and, and in a more academic context. And I myself have never... Uh, had the pleasure of, of viewing a 3D film in a classroom setting. I imagine that brings certain considerations of image and form that aren't really present with the uh, 2D film. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the unfortunate things is that I'm at a pretty like uh, I'm at a pretty good university institution, and um, but they they don't have much faith in 3D or new media technologies at all. And so they don't have like 3D projection on campus anywhere. And so I have to, like I, like I mentioned, uh, the fact that I always have to show Jackass in the anaglyph uh, red blue uh, format of 3D, that's how I have to show all the films in the class. And so uh, there's always this, because that's a kind of a flawed format for 3D viewing. And so there's always this complaint that I get from the students about how they, uh, certain parts didn't work or it seemed to uh, give them, you know, a headache, perhaps more than a 3D movie would. But but beside that, I, uh, uh, I mean, I the nice thing about the class is that 3D as a topic is generally pretty exciting, I think, to uh, late teens, early 20-something students. And so the class always fills up really quickly, like more quickly than most of the other classes that are available. Um, but then I think a lot of the students aren't really prepared for like the theoretical uh, work that's going to be going into viewing and discussing these projects, um, mostly because, I mean, as as a filmmaker who's 
primarily interested in experimental filmmaking, I inevitably uh, kind of guide the class. Uh, the trajectory of the class is from uh, more representational narrative-driven work into uh, a more abstract domain uh, by the end of the class. And so I think for many students, there's something to grab onto at the beginning, but then uh, it can be, become a bit more challenging as we get towards like Godard and Ken Jacobs and other recent experimental films that, uh, that I show. But, uh, but yeah, I try to build up a kind of sense of history and, and the history of the medium and how and why, talking about why it's, it's been a format that uh, comes and goes. Uh, and in a sense, I, I don't think it would be all that different from a class like uh, if, if I were teaching a class on color cinema and the history of, of Technicolor, for example. Um, like it's just a, a different visual format that, that we're talking about. Um, like in, instead of starting with The Wizard of Oz, I start with Dial in for Murder and uh, yeah, and work my way basically through uh, Avatar and Gravity and uh, Goodbye to Language uh, up to the present. Um, what about the format? Uh or I guess I guess a better way to phrase it what um, about your about your new film uh, begged to have this format utilized like um, I, 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 I got a sense of, of what the movie is about but I think you'll you you probably will do a better job of explaining it than I could so uh, w- what about it you know seemed so uh, perfect to use 3d to, to kind of create it well a lot of the project is so the the project is um is is based off of well another way of saying it is is the the film begins uh by looking at this event that occurred in galveston texas in the year 1900 galveston being uh, a coastal (laughs) coastal port town um about an hour outside of houston which is where i'm from uh, and and uh, in 1900, there was a hurricane that hit uh, the coast. And this was a couple of years before uh, radio and uh, and uh, like meteorological uh, te- telegraphy was kind of enforced as a standard. And so, like weather reports of of coming uh, major storms were very slow to reach the coast and to warn people. And so uh, this event kind of happened at this perfect moment where uh, Galveston was booming and it was actually the most populated city in Texas at that time. Uh, and But technology just wasn't quite there in order to protect them from the uh, from the storm that was coming and it ended up, and that hurricane ended up killing um, uh, uh, a third of the approximately a third of the entire city and uh, which ultimately kind of moved uh, the the cultural center from Galveston t- into Houston, which is now uh, the the most populated city in Texas, of course. And so um, I was I was thinking a lot about this fact of technology and the and the turn of technology that this storm just kind of, narrowly missed and, uh, and, and technology as a kind of protective force in that sense, like something that actually is, is there sense of safety for, for a population and for, uh, for people. And, 
uh, and just kind of considering this question in the context of 3D and, and, and image making in general, because, you know, 1900 hesitation of being at this moment of the birth of cinema, uh, this moment when cinema was starting to become popular, but before it was kind of settled down into a narrative mode and people were still kind of figuring out the language of what cinema really is and who is interested in it and who is it for and uh, like what is the audience for this. And so it was just kind of a way of thinking back at this historical moment and kind of reimagining it as happening under a different technological circumstance. And so uh, the movie begins with uh, stereo uh, 3D images that were actually taken of the of Galveston in the aftermath of the hurricane. And so it's looking at these images of the devastation, which were fo photographed in 3D, um, as was popular at that time in news reporting. Uh, and and then uh, it shifts gears to look at uh, a house that's uh, 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 somewhere nearby, apparently, but not uh, in any uh, specific location. And in, in this kind of warehouse near this house, there's this development of this uh, prototype of a new televisual object that uh, uh, shows 3D images of something. It's not clear what and it's not clear why, but most of the movie is looking at this, uh, allowing you as a viewer of the film to have this kind of active uh, investigation of what these, uh, what this object is showing and why, wondering why it's showing it and just trying to figure it out uh, as something that's not really being presented with any specific context. Um, uh, so it is an object that is uh, in a way, very pure and and absolute because it doesn't have any language that we can kind of attach to it. And so I was kind of drawn to this idea of of looking at an object that's uh, imagined and make believe, but it it also kind of resembles something that we can say is somewhat familiar, but familiar in perhaps an, uh, an uncanny way. And so yeah, that's kind of what the movie is. And uh, I kind of made it not really fully aware of whether or not it was even a movie, but I was happy that after it showed at a couple of film festivals, uh, people were starting to write about it in a way that uh, was calling it a movie. And so I was like, okay, I guess this is actually a movie. <laughs> uh, and uh, all right, so. Do you have any footage of a uh, contemporary Galveston in there or is it all this archival footage? Uh, there is a bit, yeah. I uh, one of the, in, in the last several months of filming and I filmed on and off for about two years, um, it was, uh, I went uh, back to Galveston uh, during one of my visits home and and like shot around uh, some of the hurricane memorials that they have on the coastline mm. uh, and yeah and those do make an mm. she hit the the seawall and all that too yeah yeah and, yes. and there's still some like uh, memorabilia uh, memorabilia rubble that they have just kind of there um, which is also there but I think if, if you aren't familiar with with uh, those monuments, then I don't think it, it would necessarily be clear to you uh, what you're looking at, like the idea that you're looking at this uh, memorial for okay. the for that event. One of the things I was kind of curious was is like how contemporary Galveston, how you feel like it works on film, because I, I visited there because I have family, uh, so I visited there a little bit. And my impression of the city was always that it felt like an old city, uh, not like not like ancient, like a European one, but like a city kind of like frozen in time. So there's a lot of architecture and, and houses that feel very like... Uh, early early 20th century you know like and maybe maybe this is just like myself like 
understanding like or, or hearing about the 1900 hurricane but it in a lot of ways it feels like that city kind of froze in time at that moment with the hurricane and i wonder if you found that like it, it beyond like memorials or whatever was there anything about like contemporary galveston that maybe resonated with like um uh you know using you know these kind of you know maybe you know in this kind of older mode of filmmaking where you're kind of like, you know, inventing the the film language, you know, in this same way that, you know, filmmakers around like that Galveston storm were kind of inventing film language. I wondered if there was any sort of resonance with the city for yourself. Maybe. I mean, uh, it's the second film that I've shot in Galveston. And funny enough, the other one, uh, which I shot in 2008, and but this was not a 3D film, uh, I shot uh, just after Hurricane Ike hit Galveston. Yeah, and, yeah. and so it's it, there's always this kind of the thing that always brings me to Galveston is is the hurricane and the devastation of something. Uh, and and um, <laughs> so every few years. Yeah, and um, I guess when I shot that one, I, I shot way more of the actual city uh, because there was a lot more. You know, obviously since that was dealing with a fresh hurricane as opposed to one that happened 117 years ago. Uh, it was a lot of was actually still there. And um, I think I think it's part of the, the, the touristic draw to the area and the charm of it is, is that it, it has this old timiness still. Um, but I, I don't know if there's enough of the film, of, of, the, uh, of the city itself as influencing the movie that I made, uh, that I would be able to say that there's a kind of like an analog or, or a, a parallel between the, the the conversation with technology that I'm having with the conversation mm-hmm. with a conversation about the the, uh, the city as a kind of uh, frozen in time thing, as you're saying. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that if Galveston had become a very modernized city, that I would be less drawn to uh to going back there and um and filming it I, th- I think there is something about the fact that it is so unusual uh with relation to how cities uh look now uh that is appealing but um but yeah i mean pretty much all the footage that i got uh of galveston for this film is basically looking out at the water anyway so you don't really gotcha you don't really see any any of the architecture in this one while we are having conversations about technology and inventing new film languages and stuff this might be irrelevant but i I feel compelled to ask um as an academic who studies 3d as a a new mode of, of visual um storytelling do you have any just general thoughts about vr and like whether or not that has the same kind of future that that 3d ended up having uh is that is it even cinema because it doesn't have a frame uh like what do you see as the future of vr and how it relates to movies as we know them now uh my my stock answer to this question has been that uh well, first of all, I, I haven't really experienced VR um, uh, outside of uh, two Christmases ago when my uncle uh, got some sort of like gear VR headset thing for his Samsung phone, and I tested it out for like ten minutes, and uh, it seemed cool enough. But and I have nothing against VR, but uh, the thing about VR is I yeah I don't 
to answer your question of is it cinema is I don't really think it is like I think of it more in line with gaming and yeah. you know ga- gaming is fa- is great like I, I have nothing against gaming I just think it's a different medium than um, mm-hmm. than cinema like the thing about cinema is uh, in addition to the fact that it's I I, I value the, one of the things I value about cinema is the kind of communal experience that you can have with it and you can mm-hmm. go to a movie and sit with an audience as annoying as audiences often are like there is a certain energy I find that you have with uh, watching a film with other people and everyone seeing and hearing the exact same thing at the exact same time right and uh that i think your own subjective response to that uh becomes more telling about who you are uh because (laughs) you can you know uh compare that to how other people are are reacting to this as opposed to everyone having their own unique experience where you know some people are looking left and others are looking right or uh, yeah. Some people are, uh, you know, jumping up and down for ten minutes, and other people are just kind of walking <laughs> off and doing whatever their own thing is. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, it, it's 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 the, the the fact that you're you have a fixed duration, you have a fixed spatial component where the frame is always the same for everybody in a, in a movie, whereas in VR the frame is not always mm-hmm. the same. Uh, and I, I, it's just this kind of absolute thing that cinema is and as an experience that I think is is kind of fundamental to what makes cinema cinema and so VR is is something that I think is uh, you know it's it's still very novel and I I I don't I don't know really what it's going to do but I do feel fairly confident that it will not be uh, the the future of cinema that some people mm-hmm. perhaps think or even fear that it might be uh, currently. I, I think it's just too fundamentally different uh, right. thing uh, to ever be a kind of replacement for that. I laughed when you uh, talked about the communal experience of watching movies and your reaction being different than the people around you because I'm thinking about two weeks from now watching Jackass 3D with a, a crowd of people and just, <laughs> just how how in in, in Incred- or just strange of an experience that is going to be uh, to watch people react to this movie. We've mostly talked about that film kind of to bring it back around to Jackass in very like theoretical academic terms. But if you don't mind, I'm, I'm kind of curious what your opinion of the movie is just as a movie, as a, as a piece of entertainment. Uh, do you, what, what are your general thoughts on like Jackass in general or, or Jackass 3D specifically? Oh, well, I've only seen it twice and it was, it was basically the two times that I've taught it. Um, and I, I found it way funnier actually the second time, the first time, the only part that I really actually found funny was the, uh, the opening with Beavis and Butthead actually (laughs) like demonstrating, like just kind of making fun of the, the myth of, of 3d, as as giving you a, a more like tactile experience that it literally slaps you in the face, <laughs> uh, and uh, but, but yeah I um, and I it was also distracted by the certain moments of like uh, the camera uh, kind of being an intrusion to a certain like candidness that certain stunts are going for like there's a moment where a, a couple of uh, little people are having a, a like a domestic dispute in a bar. And then all of a sudden it gets uh, very rowdy and, and people get hurt. And, and then uh, like uh, a bunch of little people, paramedics and police officers show up and, and 
all, you have all these innocent bystanders who are who are just kind of there witnessing all of this and and being befuddled by the fact that all these little people have shown up and caused this huge scene and this huge huge ruckus in this bar in the middle of the afternoon uh, but uh, yeah it, it's 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 like a moment that's not really doing anything with the 3d in any way but it's also like the fact that there are cameras present like ruins any sense that this is in any way a surprise or feels like in any in something that's like unstaged and uh so things like that i was i always find sort of surprising just because one of the things about that i think would make something like that really work and, and make it kind of unique to the jackass experience is this kind of sense that it's kind of real and that it's unexpected and genuine, genuinely surprising. And I, I don't know, I like, it's been a long time since I've watched the first two jackass films, but like, I feel like there's more, uh, kind of things like that in this one than I remember in the series when I first watched it, when it was like airing on MTV. And then when I watched the, uh, the first two movies, but uh, watching it the second time, I I I I didn't really have those problems with it. Like I, I found most of it actually really funny, uh, and and you know I, I don't and and also the moments that kind of nauseated me uh, were even somehow more effective. Maybe maybe it's just the fact that I had no. I didn't have to compete against my expectations about what I wanted from a 3D Jackass movie anymore, but like everything seemed funnier. Everything seemed more disgusting. Everything seemed more nauseating. And it, it, uh, it, it, it kind of had the experience that I was kind of hoping it to have the second time I saw it. And so, uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I really don't need anything more than from a Jackass movie, uh, than to feel like I need to throw up and to laugh <laughs> a bunch of times. And so in that sense, like it's kind of, for what it is it's like you know in a way kind of perfect <laughs> well blake uh thank you so much for for coming on and, and chatting with us sure no problem and i encourage people in the uh in the knoxville or tennessee area to to go to the big ears festival and, and check out blake's film as well as the other 3d films that they'll be playing there i, I i'm very jealous that uh you all are going to get to see all those. It sounds really cool. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be a good time, yeah. And that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary, this very long episode of Cinematary. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on letterbox.letterbox.com slash cinematary, where we post all of the movies specifically the jackass ones that we talked about in this episode uh next week we will be doing a double feature with two true tennessee icons i think these are kind of two of the faces that you most uh closely associate with the state of tennessee and that is elvis presley and dolly parton uh so we will be doing 1957's jailhouse rock and 1980's nine to five uh so yeah it should be should be a fun one and it's kind of one of those if you're gonna do a series on tennessee movies or just tennessee in general you can't leave out elvis and dolly so until then thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week